We gather on this ninth Sunday after Pentecost to worship God in word and song, in singing and silence, in spirit and truth. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jessica Chica, and I have the privilege of serving as university chaplain for international students here at Marsh Chapel. Dean Hill is away this week and greets each of you warmly. Today we continue our national summer preaching series on Matthew and the costs of discipleship. We welcome the Reverend Dr. Stephen Cady back to the pulpit here at Marsh Chapel after a few years away. Reverend Dr. Cady serves as the senior minister at Asbury First United Methodist Church in Rochester, New York. Welcome, Stephen. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As able, please stand in the praise of God.
together. O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, increase and multiply upon us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Blessed Holy Trinity, one God, who greets us in this and every season, whose word never fails, whose promise is sure. In our moment of confession, as the choir guides us, we remember the encouragement of the scripture. Pray at all times in the spirit, with prayer and supplication, supplication for all the saints. In supplication for all, we confess our sin and recognize our need for contrition, confession, and lament, awaiting the peace and pardon of Almighty God, trusting in the peace and pardon of God. just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verses 15 through 28. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. 
Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what the mind of the, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give up everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 105 with the Antiphon. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wonderful works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wonderful works he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of his servant Abraham, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He is mindful of his covenant forever, of the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Praise the Lord. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, chapter 13, verses 33, 31 through 33, and 44 through 52. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. What a gift it is to be in this pulpit. I want to thank Dean Hill for his kind uh, invitation to be here today. What a gift it is to stand in the pulpit that he occupies so aptly and ably every week during the school year. I also want to say a special thank you to Reverend Dr. Chica for her graciousness in welcoming and all the rest of the staff for their kindness in having us here today. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The kingdom of heaven is like like a mustard seed, like yeast, like treasure hidden in a field, like a merchant in search of fine pearls, like a net cast into the sea that catches fish of every kind. The kingdom of heaven is like this. When the study of adult development began in 1938, at the tail end of the Great Depression, the idea was simple. To follow a group of promising young men throughout their, what were bound to be fruitful and healthful lives, in order to uncover, finally, the secret of health and happiness. To that end, they began this longitudinal study at Harvard. Now, for those unfamiliar, that is a little school across the Charles River from here. It doesn't get a whole lot of attention. They began with 268 Harvard sophomores in 1938, all white men of some privilege, as there were no women undergraduates at Harvard at the time and very few people of color. And for 85 years, the research team itself changing decade by decade would meet with these young men, have them fill out questionnaires, have lengthy conversations, speak with their doctors in an attempt to uncover all sorts of things about their friendships, their careers, their families, and their lives. With a couple of notable exceptions, Ben Bradley being one of them, who would go on to become the editor of the Washington Post, famous, of course, for authorizing the Watergate investigation, and President John F. Kennedy, perhaps you've heard of him. Most of the participants stayed completely anonymous in this study. Their stories only told using numbers. The assumption, of course, going into this, given where these students were beginning, 
given that so many of them came from families of privilege, privilege given that they began their lives at, B, at, at Harvard University, presumably because they couldn't get into BU, the idea was that they would go on to become paragons of health and happiness. Only as some of us learn the hard way, we have to be careful when we assume, as we know what it does to you and to me. As David Brooks once wrote about this group of study participants, their lives would go on to play out in ways that would defy any imagination save Dostoevsky's. That is, they went on to face the same vicissitudes of life we all face, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, all of the challenges and traumas and dramas that we all face in our lives with the same mixed results. To be clear, they did experience some success, some rising to positions of prominence and power, some gaining more money than most of us could ever imagine, which, as we learned this week, almost assuredly meant that their children were able to go to Harvard as well. And yet, despite having all of the trappings of success, despite where they began, despite the power and privilege that they amassed throughout their lifetime, very few of them reported being truly happy. As George Valiant, who was the project's executive director for more than three decades, found out quickly their accolades and positions and prominence had very little to do with the happiness they reported. No, in the end, as he said, that had to do with one thing and one thing alone. Love. As he put it, happiness is love. Full stop. Do you hear, after 85 years of following these 264 white men and eventually others, what they really learned is that happiness, fulfillment, has less to do with the strength of our resumes than it does with the strength of our relationships. Happiness, life is lived in the sharing. That is, happiness is love. Full stop. We've heard that somewhere before, haven't we? hard to put our finger on exactly where we might have heard something like that. Oh yeah, it's here, right? That is, of course, the point of coming to church. It's why we dragged ourselves out of bed this morning or tuned into the live stream, why we are putting up with this preacher from Rochester, because we know that we need the reminder from time to time, week after week, that life that happiness comes through love. Sure, we make it more complicated. Trust me, we make it really complicated. But if you were really to get rid of everything else, that is to empty these places from all the pomp and pageantry, the detritus of doctrine and dogma, and just try and get down to the core, what would be left? Love. Full stop. It's that seed which grows into the greatest of all shrubs. It's the thing that this is all about. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Or as John put it, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Sure, we make it more complicated. We make it about all sorts of other things. Who's in, who's out, who believes the way we do, and who doesn't. But in the end, that's really what it is. The whole point of our faith is to love. Not some people, but all people. Why? Because love leads to life. The gospel in four words. Love leads to life. It's what Jesus came to share, isn't it? 
Sure, we sometimes forget that Jesus did actually have a point. We've all heard these sermons, we've heard these scriptures before, and we sort of move on like a song that we've gotten so used to singing, we've forgotten what it means. We know that they do have a point, but we sometimes forget it. Jesus did have a point, which was simply this, love leads to life. Now, truth be told, we have very little access to the actual words of Jesus. We've just got these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are great But they were the earliest written 40 or 50 years after Jesus. That is, their second and third hand accounts. In other words, there wasn't someone walking around tracing after Jesus, writing down everything he had to say, black pen for the story, red pen for his words. No! And yet, almost miraculously, broad brushstrokes here, The Gospels basically agree. Jesus came to give us some idea of what it means to live. And the way to do it is through love. Not of some people, but of all people. And it sounds really simple until we actually try it, doesn't it? After all, the kind of love we're talking about is not the cotton candy, sunshine and roses, tiptoe through the tulips kind of love. It doesn't come in heart-shaped boxes, at least not always. No, this is the kind of love that asks something of us. It makes us stand when we'd rather sit. It makes us go when we'd rather stay. It makes us speak when it would be so much easier to stay silent. Or maybe for people who look like me to stay silent when we're so used to speaking. Do you hear? It's the kind of love that forces us to change the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our lives. It forces us to give up something of ourselves so that we might gain something else in return. We ask about the cost of discipleship. It is to lay down our very life. And in so doing, finding life in return. Sometimes you have to lose your life in order to gain it. Do you hear the cost of discipleship is being willing to lay down our life and the reward is gaining life in return? The kind of life that not even death can destroy. Because in the end, our faith is not about what happens when we die. It's about what happens when we live. Right here. Right now. Jesus said it most succinctly, or at least John's Jesus said it most succinctly, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they speak about it as well. They just do it speaking about a kingdom, the kingdom of God in Mark and Luke, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. Maybe you heard it in the gospel lesson for today. It was sort of hard to avoid. He says it six different times. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on to offer different things. A mustard seed, yeast, treasure hidden in a field, a master who brings out the old and the new alike. We've heard this kingdom language before, haven't we? And we sort of move on from it and move on to the next thing, getting our grocery list ready for after church. Sure, it says something about who God is, the nature and power and authority of God, but it also says something about us. See, being in a kingdom requires us to be in relationship with one another. See, the gospel isn't about me and it's not about you. It is and has always been about us. That's what's different in the end from the Harvard study across the river and what we do every Sunday. See, we're not interested in happiness or fulfillment or life for a few individuals, especially just elite white males. We're interested in happiness and fulfillment for all. All. Young and old, black and white, gay and straight, male and female, rich and poor, broken and whole, Republican and Democrat, trans and cis, and everyone beyond and between. We are interested in everyone finding their way towards life 
And if we look out in our world and we notice that there is a barrier to someone being able to find that kind of life, it is our job as people of faith to remove it. We even have a name for that kind of love. Maybe you heard it. It's called justice. That is, we look for those barriers which stand in the way of life to people and we tear them down so that all of us might live. Howard Thurman used to stand in this pulpit for nine years, used to say, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go and do that. Because what this world needs are people who have come alive. And if you're scratching your head wondering what it is that makes you come alive, well, maybe that's where the parables come in. See, Jesus could have just told us exactly what to do, but we know ourselves better than that. We know that if he had just said, do it this way, we would have quickly dismissed it, said, well, that's for that time and that place. It doesn't really matter to us. But the beauty of a parable is that it forces us to interpret in the time that we have. It forces every generation to start to think about what it could mean. Not for other people, but for us. In the end, they're all about the kingdom of heaven, that vision for a world in which we all finally and fully live as Christ commanded, in which everyone finds their way to life, in which we've practiced and found the way in which to love one another. But it takes some thinking about to get there, doesn't it? So how about some practice today? Why not just take one of the parables? There were six given. Let's just do with one. We're not going to be here all day long. How about the parable of the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds? Now, for those botanists among us, they may raise their hand and tell us, of course, that it is not actually the smallest of all seeds, but we'll give it to Jesus. There are bigger, smaller seeds. But then it goes on to say that grows into the greatest of all bushes. That is quite a statement. The greatest of all bushes. Are there rankings here? Where do hydrangeas fall? What's number two on the list? Why aren't churchyards all filled with mustard bushes? The answer, of course, is, have you ever seen a mustard bush? It is one ugly shrub. Or more accurately, weed. Now, typically, we hear this parable of the mustard seed as a sort of underdog story. The story how of how something small can grow into something great, that even a small act of love can turn into something wonderful, great, and maybe that's the parable and interpretation we need to hear this morning. But remember how it begins. The kingdom of heaven is like. And maybe in hearing that, there's something in it for us. After all, if this mustard shrub grows into something that is ugly... It also grows down and around and it weeds out everything else that is growing in it. And normally we'd think that is a bad thing. We don't like weeds. And yet maybe there's something in it for that vision for the kingdom of heaven. For those of us who need a little hope, maybe there's something in it for us. For those of us who spend our whole lives thinking that happiness will be gained when we get that next gig, when we get that next job, when we get that next grade, when we get that body we've always wanted, that if we just keep swiping right, maybe eventually we'll find that thing which we've told ourselves is out there. Maybe there's hope in it for those of us who've forgotten what those prophets from Liverpool were trying to tell us that money can't buy. Maybe there's hope for those of us who are longing for fulfillment and looking for love in all the wrong places. That when we finally get to that kingdom of heaven, all of those other things can finally go away. That all those insecurities and anxieties and little voices that tell us we're not good enough can finally be weeded out. That all the bigotries and injustices in our world that have been so pervasive will finally be gone because we will have taken away what was feeding them. Because there won't be room for anything else. 
Do you hear maybe the promise of this parable? Maybe the real cost of discipleship is that it begs us, it forces us to exchange the penultimate with the ultimate, the temporal for the eternal, the fleeting for what is permanent in our life. That permanent thing can only be love between you and me, between us, so that we can create that world in which there is finally room for all, so that even the birds of the air have a place to nest in the branches. Pick your metaphor. Pick the image that works for you. Just know in the end, the kingdom of God is that place in which none of us have to face life alone. It is that place where there's room enough for you and for me. Now maybe that's not the parable you needed this morning. Maybe you've already taken away all that stuff in your life that is keeping you from loving God and loving your neighbor fully. If so, I'd love to hear what you're doing. Good news is that there are plenty of other parables out there, five others in our lesson just for today. And Marsh Chapel will be open again next Sunday, and there are other places like this around the world that are committed to helping you figure this out together. But make no mistake... No matter what gospel lesson you read, no matter what parable you are picking up, no matter what truth you are trying to uncover, it all points to the same place. The same truth that by God's grace we don't need a Harvard study to uncover. Which is simply this. Happiness is love. Full stop. Thanks be to God. Amen. letter to the church of the Thessalonians, he instructed, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. So let us follow his instructions and pray joyfully and thankfully. You are welcome to stand, remain seated, 
uh, come forward to kneel at the altar rail. Now let us sing together hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. compassionate God. Lord of love, you are most worthy of our joyful praise, for you are our strength and shield. We trust in you, for you are our ever-present help in times of trouble. Our faith in you helps us to endure whatever we encounter, because we know that you are at our right hand. We remain joyful, because we know that through it all, Nothing can separate us from your unfailing love. We praise you, dear Lord, and thank you for your boundless love and faithful mercy. Lord of life, we testify to your goodness and unfathomable greatness this morning. You have provided us the path to salvation through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And although we continue to sin time and after time, you have forgiven us. We confess our sins and commit ourselves to you. Lead us according to your word so that we are not indifferent to the plight of others and to the plight of our planet. Deliver us from the evil of apathy. Forgive us, gracious God, and fill our hearts with empathy. Holy Spirit, clothe us in the cloak of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Help us to be self-aware of how our actions affect others. Help us to be self-aware of how our actions affect your creation. Help us to act according to your will and to live in the most excellent way with love. Lord of peace, we pray for our country's leaders and for all leaders around the world. Give them discerning hearts and lead them on the path of righteousness. We pray for those who are enduring unrelenting heat, powerful winds, and devastating floods. We pray for the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Comfort them and give them the strength to persevere. We pray for people whose lives are affected by crime, violence, and injustice. Comfort them and give them the strength to endure and forgive. We pray for the sick, the dying, and those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. Comfort them, Lord, and give them the strength of your presence. We know that you are faithful to all of your promises and loving to all of your creation. Hear our prayers, for we offer them with the faith that you are near to all who call on you in truth. We pray these things in the name of the one who is crowned with many crowns, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now as a community of faith, we pray together as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Let us with gladness bring before the Lord the first of the fruits of the everything that God has given us.
name of Jesus Christ to do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can in all the times you can to all the people you can so long as ever you can go in the name of Jesus Christ never forgetting that happiness that life itself is love. Amen.